Hi, my name is Emily Andrus. I'm the executive producer of Winona Earp. You're listening to the ContraZoom podcast on Live in Limbo. This is ContraZoom, a Live in Limbo production. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Babulakis. And this is part two of our Toronto Screenwriters Conference podcast spectacular super wonderful party thing that we're doing in the first episode uh we went over sort of the overview some of uh the favorite uh guests that were speaking at the tsc and we also had two amazing interviews uh by glenn mazara and stephen falk two really high profile people uh glenn worked on walking dead and stephen falk worked on orange the new black and you're the worst and once again we are joined by Nathan Roizen, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I am great, and uh, we're excited to keep going more. We've got two more really exciting interviews, um, specifically with Emily Andrus and Moira Wally Beckett. Now, those are two names that you might not know just off the top of your head, but that does not mean that they are not important people. Um, last week, we sort of talked about some of your favorite uh talks during the sessions uh were there any that you found that were interesting but maybe just didn't work or didn't really connect to you uh nathan uh no in all honesty no i think every speaker was really great um yeah they honestly they came there and they never phoned it in they just it was great that's good to hear uh if if you had uh, a chance next year to sort of um, not necessarily specific names, uh, but are there would there be topics that you would be interested in seeing them cover in the future? Whether it's uh, I, I know in the past they've had things like video game writers, and uh, they had a, a a runner from NBC a couple years ago, sort of a big wig sort of executive. But is there anything like that that would interest you? Uh, me personally, yeah. Um- well, there's one thing that kind of it, it makes sense why they did this, but for me, um, and I think a lot of people as well, maybe having a feature writer come in and speak on his process and you know, kind of the same depth that uh, Stephen Fox spoke about his process, or you know, um, something along those lines, because you know, like you know, all the writing jobs are now in television, so it makes sense why they bring in a lot of TV writers and kind of you know, really focus in on that part of screenwriting. Uh, but that would be interesting to see some screenwriting stuff or some film writing stuff like that. Yeah, and the sense of breaking down the way Stephen Falk was doing it, but over a shorter span, like breaking down a movie uh, or or something different. Yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be that. I guess. Well, we the big feature writer that was there um, was Charles Randolph, and you know, he kind of talked about his process of writing a film, but. Yeah, I think actually, um, you know, now that I think about it more, probably something, you know, a little more focused like that, like Stephen Fox thing. Yeah. What about you, Andreas? What would I like to see in the future? Well, yeah, you've been there three years, so I guess you've seen a lot more. Yeah, I've seen a lot of bases covered. Um, maybe what they can do, if possible, because, you know, they've moved to the venue, like now it's at the Metro Convention Center for the first year. Maybe they could even spend a weekend. And you know how, um, well, we'll get into this, especially with Emily Andrus, but uh, some, some of the writers have a task where they have to come up with a storyboard or come up with an idea in a very short time span. What if maybe on the Friday, for those who are available, maybe like a very interactive workshop, maybe led by one of the guest speakers of a high profile, so actual screenwriters with you know maybe the extra golden ticket can fully engaged in an actual experience so you're not just listening you're actually involved that's interesting i, I you think, think that, that would fly yeah potentially like if if you bought like some sort of a vip package or a special special ticket for just that one event like a workshop type thing yeah yeah i think i think the only issue then would be uh you're not supposed as Moira talked about, you're not supposed to like submit spec scripts for things you're working on. Maybe there might be some sort of legality about, uh, 
you know, if you're pitching your own ideas and, you know, down the line, someone, whether it's the, the, the person who is moderating the session or someone else has a similar idea, I'm sure that they wouldn't want to deal with any sort of legal issue like that. But if it was more of a, a general thing of, you know, let's come up with a story on the spot sort of thing, maybe. Yeah, something, you know, maybe not as specific as I had listed, but, you know, something because yeah. either way, like they cover so many bases that I can't complain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's sort of an interesting idea to have, um, Nathan. I guess because it was your first year, so this this would be more interesting to hear you talk about it. But uh, in the in the last episode, we talked about how there was you know one woman who wanted to get her money's worth by always asking questions. Other than that one lady, did you find the people asking questions were they you know thought provoking enough, or were they a little too surface level? No, the, the the questions were all great because everybody in there was involved in it. Like, you know, I met a couple of people who are working on TV shows in Canada right now. You know, everyone there is a writer and they're not beginning their writing careers or the writing journey, I guess, if you want to call it. They're actively, they've been working at it for a long time. So the questions were very insightful um, and very smart, intelligent questions. You know, although a lot of people, like you said, get your money's worth. A lot of people ask very personal questions. So, you know, in regards like um, when the when Nicole Clemens, the FX executive, was doing her speech and her Q&A thing came up, one guy asked about animation and how um, they go about, you know, acquiring animation shows and how do you pitch a show like that. So, you know, that's kind of an example of the types of personal questions that came out. Yeah, I, I find that the questions, while sometimes they're usually pretty personal, they're not they're not vapid by any sense. It's, you know, this is this guy's one opportunity to use his leverage talking to such a high profile person. Yeah, exactly. Although there was this one guy that we found, I later found out was giving business cards to every speaker. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird like gray line where they they kind of don't want to encourage it, but at the same time, it's an acknowledged reality of this is also a networking event. So, you know, if you are able to get the ear of a writer, I guess use it as long as you don't cross the line too much. I mean, I guess. I don't know. Um, but everyone's a writer there. Like that, that was the coolest thing for me was the fact that everybody in attendance sitting around you is a writer. And, and they have projects, you know, whatever, short films online, they're doing stuff, uh, even working on television shows. Um, everyone was working and writing somehow. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty cool thing. Uh, I guess let's go to our first interview. Uh, Andreas chatted with Emily Andrus, who is the showrunner and executive producer of Winona Earp, not Wyatt Earp, Winona Earp. Uh, and she used to be uh, the executive producer of Lost Girl and the showrunner on that. And uh, she also worked on the show Killjoy. So this is sort of our big Canadian content for this episode. So let's give that a listen. Hello, this is Andres Fabulakis with LiveInLimbo.com. I'm here with Emily Andres, who just gave an, a big panel with uh, a bunch of fellow other writers. Um, you know, they went over a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode that they created themselves. And she's got her her own series, Winona Earp. That's just, if, did I butcher the name? That no, it's that's pronounced? perfect. Is it? Oh okay. Say it 10 times. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Winona Earp. There we go. Um, th- that, that's currently on right now. And uh, well, as you can hear, she's, she's with me right now. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And this is, it's such an interesting session that just happened oh, thank because you. it's, you're not just dissecting a show. You're creating one that you've, that's like fresh to you. You've seen it as a fan, and now you're thinking, "How do I reapproach this?" And it's very relevant now because, um, funnily enough, you mentioned Gilmore Girls. Like, if we had to revisit it, would it? We don't want it to sound like it did back in the 2000s. Oddly enough, that's coming back. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Twin Peaks, which I'm super excited oh, about. It's coming back. Me too. Yeah. So, um, with a lot of these shows coming back, X Files. Mm-hmm. How important is it to revisit shows and maybe open them up, not just as a fan, but as an academic perspective? Um, well, I definitely think Buffy deserves to be academically examined because I really feel like it still has, it has really changed the way we write genre. I think it's just like had such an incredible female protagonist. It was so quippy and funny. It really kind of married different tropes. You know what I mean? It wasn't just a genre show or just a high school show or just a romance. Um, 
So yeah, you know, and in this day and age, the unfortunate truth or the fortunate truth is it's really hard to make a hit. So I think more and more you're going to see creators and networks and producers looking back to kind of so-called sure things and wondering if they can reboot them. So I would certainly watch a reboot of Buffy. Especially, and I'm available. Exactly, especially if you're if you're behind it, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. I think uh, I think uh, there's a big line of people ahead of me, maybe. But um, yeah, I think it would be incredible. And it's funny you see how many shows are trying to imitate that kind of voice now. So it definitely has some. Speaking of um, the big following of people yeah. who might be like, get in line. I want to write this first. Yeah. Um, obviously, online there's a thing called fan fiction, which yeah. you you talked about in uh, mm-hmm. in your presentation. Now uh, you and the fellow writers said. Let's try make this actually a TV show that we're revisiting, but let's include a bit of fan fiction. And right. I was sitting there thinking, is there a bit of a difference? Because you take whatever you love from a show. Mm-hmm. You might like this character. You might not like this character. But somebody might disagree. They might agree. How do you separate the two? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm very biased because I'm a professional screenwriter. I think fan fiction always sort of satisfies a very niche audience. Do you know what I mean? And it's not necessarily the same as creating a 42-minute episode of television that needs to hit on different relationships and have different A plots, different B plots, be serialized, established to the show. I mean, you know, if I'm running an episode of television, it has to reach millions of people, but fan fiction can really just reach people who enjoy a certain ship or a certain, you know, aspect of the show. Um, that being said, it's incredible to inspire that kind of writing among other people. I've been on lots of shows, particularly Lost Girl, which had like a ton of fan fiction. Um, it's funny, I'm very supportive of it, but I legally can't read it, which is kind of interesting if I'm writing on that show, because let's say you do a fan fiction and you do um, Buffy makes out with Godzilla. And let's say I just happen to have an episode of Buffy. Yeah, you're like, how oh, did I, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you just look like the type. No, I just get the second backpack. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you're going to hand me your script to pitch. But um, so you've got a Buffy Godzilla story. And let's say that like, we honestly do have a Buffy Godzilla story down the pipe. I don't want you to say, well, you stole my idea, right? Uh, so legally, like, I can't kind of read something with your characters until I'm finished with the show. But that being said, like, um, oh, it's just inspired to, it's just, it means you're hitting on something emotionally if people are writing fan fiction. So, and this is very specifically a spec script. So this would have been a professional script that we gave to kind of showcase our writing. And fan fiction is often like three pages or one kind of bit. It's not really in a script format very often. So... Actually, uh, because I'm more of like a film journalist and like um, other aspects of film, I had a big interest in like, um, you know, acting or maybe behind the camera. So um, to those who aren't too in the know, what exactly is a spec strip or spec script rather? And how does it work? Great question. So when you are deciding you want to become a screenwriter, it's often very um, intimidating. What, how do I show to an agent or a head writer or a group of writers that I know how to write? Well, your first instinct is to create something from nothing, create your own show or create your own script and write that. But a spec script is more specifically writing an episode of your favorite television show. And what that does is that shows me that you can learn structure and learn how to imitate voices. Because if you truly want to be a screenwriter in this business, you're probably not going to get your own show right out of the bat. I need to know that you can imitate my voice. If I hire you as a junior, I need to know that you can kind of write a scene that sounds kind of like what I would do, that you understand structure. So a spec script is a great way to demonstrate to people that you just understand sort of the principles of screenwriting. You know, it's harder for me to judge your own original voice um, if I just need you to come on my own show. So that's what a spec script is. It's just writing a script for an existing show that's on television. And one of the examples you brought up, actually, which um, I know I don't look the type. One of my all-time <laughs> favorite shows is Mary Tyler. Oh, that's show. amazing. Yeah, so when you were like, Rhoda, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I never yeah. thought of her as coming out. Basically, the example that was given was if Rhoda came out to, to Mary Richards as, as a lesbian in, yeah. in the show, even though she had all these dates with all these oddballs, right? Um, yeah. So would that be, for inspiring writers, would that be a big focal point, not just how to make it a relevant script to nowadays while pitching back to what the show's voice would sound like, Mm -hmm. but something that's immediately striking now? Yes. that Well, that's it, right? Like the truth is screenwriting is exploding. I feel like that. Like 15 years ago, nobody knew Joss Whedon's name or J.J. Abrams' names, right? And 
you know, Diablo Cody. Now we actually know these screenwriters and kind of celebrate them. So, you know, as a showrunner, I might get 200 scripts on my desk when I'm looking to hire a young writer. So something like that Mary Tyler Moore script, it's so fresh and kind of unique. It's both a nod to the past, as you've said, and a spec script, but also completely, you know, modern conventional take on it. So it would definitely make me pick up that script and want to read it. So anything that gives you an edge that doesn't veer into implausible or fan fiction, yes, is worth your while. If you can come up with a new twist on an old classic, I say go for it. Now to tie things up with that and I guess, you know, ships or fan fictions, um, you know, you've worked on Lost Girl. Um, you, I guess, worked in quotation marks yeah. on Buffy the Vampire yeah. for like, a, what was that, a six hour shift? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess I'm not sure that counts. I don't know if I'm going to get my royalty check, but yes, eight hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you, you damn well should. Yeah, yeah thank um, you. Oh, that's so nice. Um, so you clearly have an idea of what fan bases are like. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more than relevant now because look at something like Twin Peaks, as we just said, mm-hmm. that existed and got taken off the air for being way too screwed up. And yeah. now it's like in droves people wanting this back. Yeah. With audiences now and the way that the ways that they've changed with the internet, with Netflix, mm-hmm. with all of this communication, how important is it to have an audience that interconnects together almost on like a cult fan base? sort of connection. Right. It's everything. It's everything. It's so funny. I just launched this new show called White on Earth, which yep. you should all watch, which is super fun. It's a demon slaying cowgirl, basically, but it's really a feminist Western. That's also a genre show. Um, and, you know, people don't watch live TV the same way they used to. They watch it on iTunes. They PVR it, whatever. So every Friday night, Winona Earp airs, and we live tweet it with the cast. And we tend to trend on Twitter. We're only five episodes in because of the fan base. The fan base has really adopted it as their own. They love it. They've decided which ships they're going to support, which characters they love. Um, and in some ways, that counts more than ratings nowadays. It shows that there's an engaged fan base that will follow the show anywhere. And that's just buzz you can't buy, you know? It shows that you're doing something right. At the same time, we're still kind of a slave to the old model. The Nielsen ratings still count, you know? We still have to push soap and sell Tide. Um, oh, free free shout out to Tide. Um, <laughs> Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Coca-Cola brought you for. Um, so it's just such an interesting time right now as we talk about peak TV. There are just 400 scripted shows right now. Ratings are not what they used to be. So an engaged fan base and certainly social media is a way for a network or creators to kind of measure who is truly watching the content. So, and also just, um, on a personal level, I find it so gratifying. Like it used to be you wrote an episode of television, you filmed it, and it didn't air till 10 months after you'd worked on it. So you'd be sitting on the couch eating Cheetos in your pajamas, watch an episode of television, and then be like, I hope people like that, right? Now yeah. I feel like that kind of engagement and just watching people connect to what you've done and make hilarious jokes you never thought of, I feel like it's a whole other level of pleasure and engagement that is really gratifying. So I love it. Has anybody have or written any spec scripts on anything that you've worked on, you know, like Lost Girl or Winona Earp? Right. Um, well, the truth is, this is in the same way that I can't read fan fiction, I would never read a spec script for Lost Girl or really? Winona Earp. Same legally. Like, so it's funny. Like, if you wrote an X Files spec script and gave it to me, I would read it. And it's not only a legal issue, it's also that I'm probably too possessive and close to the show, right? Like, right. versus I don't really have a stake in X Files. I know what I like about X Files. If you give me an X Files spec script, I'll be like, oh, yeah, this kid can write X-Files, right? I'm not sort of in the writing room, so I don't know the minutia of like, well, Mulder's birthday is actually May, not April. You know what I mean? Like there's something about it's going to be harder for you to convince me that your take on my work is better than my take on my own work, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, I have read some Lost Girl fan fiction now that I'm done with the show, and like, I love it. I, I just think it's, it just, again, warms my heart that people are like taking these characters and making them their own. But I'd read a spec script for any other genre show, basically. Yeah. If you were able to make another spec a spec script. I have a problem saying that for some. I know reason. it's well, it's two S's, right? It's like alliteration. Spec script. I know. <laughs> spec script. Yeah. Um, if you had the opportunity to write another one of those, yes. Um, would you like what TV show would come to mind? Like, what is your ultimate favorite that you oh had some sort of an idea where it's like, hey, 
this would have been a great episode in my life. Right. It's hard. Like just being able to do Buffy for a day was a dream come true, to be honest. Um, you know, it's so funny for you to talk about the X-Files and Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is definitely the show for me that changed my life. It really like watching it as a young teenager. I remember watching that pilot and thinking like, what is this? It's so confident oh, music. and weird. And like that swaying traffic light. And you're just like, it, was the first time I became conscious that somebody created this. Somebody made this. It just didn't appear on TV. Someone made the choice to make it like this. Um, so I would love to write a Twin Peaks or a Buffy um, or an X-Files, but frankly, the two out of three of those shows are being um, relaunched. And Buffy still exists in comic books, which is pretty yes. interesting. Um, I'm a big genre geek. I love Battlestar Galactica. I maybe would try to tackle that. Um I don't know. A Game of Thrones? Sure. Give me all the dragons and money in the world. I'd love to write a Game of Thrones, but um, I'm just really personally drawn to genre, so it would de- definitely be something in the fantasy realm, I think. Um, well, until Twin Peaks comes back, can you give me an answer as to what happened to Special Agent Dale Cooper when he smashed his head against a mirror? Nothing good. Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing it wasn't good. like okay. a gentle smashing. I don't even know how they're going to bring him back. Isn't he possessed by Bob? What is going to happen? I have no idea. So I don't Will know. he still like apple pie? Discuss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or look at those ferns. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So um, I'm sure we're in for a great surprise, but I can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, speaking of those kinds of characters, as a writer... Um, you know, you just said you love characters of fantasy worlds. Maybe that's because they have so many attributes about them where it's like, hey, this person is such and such. Like you immediately identify who they are. Right. Do you like them? Do you do you not like them? Right. And if we can list this guy's favorite pie, then I think yeah. we're doing all right. As a screenwriter, do you try and infuse that kind of detail into your own characters, especially since you've you know, you're running a show that you've created yourself now. Right. I definitely do. Like, I think uh, we say in writing specific is always better than general. If you can give your character specific attributes and specific characteristics, I feel like they're immediately feel more like a three-dimensional real-life person, right? If you're just like, I'm a girl who eats ice cream when I'm sad, that's not really a specific character. That seems more like a stereotype. Exactly. So, um, you know, and you can, I like to base my characters on people I know in real life or people we've all met. It is kind of that tightrope walk you discuss. Like you've got to be able, the audience has to be able to immediately know what kind of character they're dealing with. But at the same time, the characters should feel fresh and unique. Um, you should want to spend time with them. So that just takes practice, right? To, and make sure they're likable. If they need to be likable, they should be likable. So, um, but definitely specific is better. Um, I guess to wrap things up. Oh, okay, thank um, you. No problem. Uh, you know, you gave a great presentation with thank all you. the other panelists. Uh, you've given a great interview here, and you've answered a lot of things. Um, I guess just for something to fellow screenwriters, for them to take away something from here. Um, what would be your biggest personal advice that you haven't yet given today? Oh, that I haven't yet given. I would say. With so much content on the air and on platforms like web series and stuff, I feel like more than ever, you should feel confident to write what you want to write. If you want to write something that feels left of center, if your voice is a little bit odd or a little bit unique, or you're not sure if you can sell it anywhere, if you have passion and you really create something unique, more than ever, you will find a home for it. So don't be discouraged. I would say put your best foot forward and write what you're passionate about. And that's 70% of the battle. So that's my advice. All right. So I guess, you know, instead of just asking you how that interview went, Andreas, how do you think it feels for the conference to specifically have people, a Canadian talk about the Canadian market to a group of Canadians? I think it's great because, you know, a lot of people, you know, you could either think one of two things was Canadian film or actors or whatever. You could either think, those who made it big in the States, you know, like the Ryan Gosling's of the world or the David Cronenberg's, or you could think specifically Canada. And, you know, this, this brought a lot of reality to those who might feel like, Oh, we will never break out of, you know, that label of just being strictly Canadian, not just somebody who happens to be Canadian. And, you know, like it sheds some light on it where it's like, even if that were the case, why is it so bad? Because look at the, the availability you have, look at, the access to all of these different worlds that you have. And I think, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, it was very opening and she's a terrific speaker. She's very joyful and, and electric. So, you know, everything that she says was just uplifting and yeah, the whole thing was just extremely positive. 
That's good to hear. I think it's one of those things where, like, you know, you look at Canadian music right now, and we're just killing the world. We we have, you know, top chart topping people, and then some of the best like uh, upcoming indie music and things like that because we fostered a culture that uh, likes it, listens to it, supports it, buys it, goes out to see the shows, and all this sort of thing. Uh, where we can have this great talent pool, whereas on the other side, our film and TV landscape is so hit or miss. You know, every every couple of years, we'll uh, we'll get a, a big Quebec film that gets a, a foreign film nomination at the Oscars, or there'll be a TV show that sort of crosses the boundaries and, and makes it popular uh, in Canada, but sometimes in the U.S. You know, things like Flashpoint or what have you. But for wow. the most part where we still kind of ridicule our our film and television industry and it's a shame because I'm not going to I'm not going to deny that it's not the best work all the time but unless we put in the time the effort and most importantly the money into it it'll never get better Exactly I can't I can't disagree with that at all Uh what are your thoughts on you know the the Canadian landscape there Nathan Um I mean I don't really I can't think of a... Sh- I mean, we have a lot of great Canadian directors. Um, like, directors living in Canada. Like, Xavier Dolan from Montreal. Uh, he did Mommy, um, which I think... Like, did really well in Cannes last year. Um, and he's got a bunch of other great films. But, you know, we have a lot of great creators like that. I think... I don't know, though. And the reason I'm having such a hard time answering this question is because I can't... Nothing comes to mind. Maybe because I'm just ignorant to the fact that it is Canadian. But nothing comes to mind... No, no Canadian TV shows that I watch or kind of like come to mind, other than Trailer Park Boys. Um, then again, I don't know how, if it's Canadian to begin with or not. But don't isn't the problem that a lot of TV shows in Canada are subsidized by the Canadian government? We don't have as the the industry isn't as privatized as it is in America. Yeah, that's that's a bit of an issue. In the sense that we're not getting the private money infused in it, so of course the only the only real money is coming from whether it's you know CBC or different grants or things like that. Um, so it is a little bit tough, and I don't think I don't think anyone will deny that we don't have really talented people because you know it's very obvious when you look at like. Hollywood or even some European films and TV shows, the amount of Canadians that we have working on them, it's not, we don't have a problem breeding these talented people. I don't know how else to, how else to say that. Uh, it's the issue of making, allowing them to be successful in Canada, which I think is a, a bit of a unique problem. But then you, you know, like, doesn't every country have that problem? Because that's the entertainment industry. It's in Los Angeles. That's the hub of it. And even though we have a lot of production going on here, which is great now because, you know, again, the Canadian government's the one that's allowing that. Um, if you're going to be a writer anywhere internationally, a lot of people who work for the BBC move over to get to America to work there. So isn't that kind of like a global problem? Maybe, but I would, I would, I would argue as far as the BBC, England goes, you know, you, looking at just the shows right now that are being made in England, you, you got stuff like Sherlock and Downton Abbey and Black Mirror, yeah, and then they also have very uniquely British directors, people like Mike Lee, and I'm blanking on a couple other names right now, that uh, are, are very much, you know, we live, we work in England, and we make stuff, whether it's not necessarily the BBC, but for the British audience. It just so happens to be popular North America and worldwide as well sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess Trailer Park Boys would be that for us, right? That yeah, is- I, I would agree that, you know, it's huge in the States. It's huge over the world. It's filmed in Nova Scotia using entirely Canadian cast and crew. That is very much a Canadian show. Yeah. So that. So what else though? What other shows do we have like that? Well, right now, I, like I would say, I'm, I'm a big fan of Schitt's Creek. Um, Andreas actually got the opportunity to, to interview the the Levies, Eugene Levy and his son Dan Levy, last year at the conference, and I was a little dismissive of it at first, but after the conference, I was like, hey, you know what? I'll check it out. It's actually a really funny show and pretty smart at times. You know, sometimes it's a little har har har. It's a CBC comedy, but for the most part, they do a pretty good job of not fully pushing the boundaries, but they do a, a decent enough job so Schitt's Creek is something I should check out 
Yeah, you know, it's a uh, you can do you can do a lot worse for a half hour comedy. Like it makes me laugh every episode, and there's you know all of the characters, all the main characters make me laugh. So it's definitely one that I recommend. Uh, and you're right about Xavier Dolan, who uh, seems to be you know the next huge emerging director. He he sort of harkens back to the days of like. Uh, the French new wave movement of like Truffaut, Godard, and then, you know, the Italian guys as well, um, where these non-English speaking directors are, you know, changing the landscape of the film industry. And, and it seems like Dolan is, is the next one to sort of do that. Yeah. Um, anything else to add on that, Andreas? Go Canada. We've got the talent. We can do this. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> All right. Well, then, you know what? I think this is a good opportunity to switch over to our next interview, our last one. It is Moira Wally Beckett, who is a name you probably don't know, but I can guarantee you, you have probably seen her work. She uh, was a staff writer on Breaking Bad before climbing up the ladder to being an executive producer on it and ended up winning several Golden Globes, specifically for an episode she she wrote called Ozymandias, which, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, uh, you probably shouldn't listen to this interview anyways, but she wrote, uh, I believe it was the second or third to last episode where Hank dies. So it's a really heartbreaking, emotional, very memorable one. Um, and then she has since gone on to create a, a mini series called Flesh and Bone about ballet, which she used to do ballet when she was younger. And now she's working on a feature film called The Grizzlies uh, that they're shooting in Nunavut. Right after she was done the conference, she went and flew up to the set in Nunavut, which is pretty crazy. Uh, so uh, let's give that a listen to. Hi, I'm Andreas Babulakis with LiveInLumbo.com. I'm here with Maura Wally Beckett, who is behind some very interesting shows that are currently happening right now. You have Flesh and Bone that just had its run and you have the upcoming Anne. But most people will know more mostly for her well-acclaimed episodes, especially Ozymandias in the hit series Breaking Bad. It is a pleasure to meet you. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I guess as you're a Vancouverite, you're technically a fellow Canadian, even though you reside in LA now. I am. I am not even just technically... I am a Canadian. I didn't give up my citizenship. I'm a resident alien in the States. Well, that's, that's great news for aspiring people here in Canada. Yes, we have, you know, Vancouver and Toronto's own film circuits, but it's great to know that somebody from our humble country of Canada can make it onto, you know, Breaking Bad and create what's, you know, considered some of the best episodes in TV history. That's huge. <laughs> So speaking of which, you know, Ozymandias said it won you an Emmy and yeah. it, it's literally considered one of the best TV episodes in history. I mean, how does that feel? Has that, it's been three years. Has that still hit you yet? <laughs> it's pretty extraordinary. Um, yeah, to have it recognized in such a way, have people say that considering all the incredible writing and all the incredible television that's come before. Um and I'm super proud of that episode. And, um, yeah, I, f I feel really lucky that I got to write it and that it, I got to work with, you know, um, Ryan Johnson, who my wonder twin, you know, he, <laughs> um, he knocked that episode out of the park. So it was a great collaborative effort. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Both of you also worked on the Fly episode as well. Yeah, which, we did. Which is another memorable one. So, um, which was Ryan's first episode of television directing. Right. I, I remember you and were we saying that. Through the yeah bottle episode, Adam. So it's crazy. <laughs> and that's exactly what he wanted, right? As it turns out, yeah, he was thrilled um, because his his um, his shot making is so unique and specific, and he's really um, he's got this. Rubik's Cube mind and there's nothing superfluous. He's never just like, well, let's just put the camera here and see what happens. Like it's mapped out. Um, really specifically, he's edited it in his head in advance. And, um, I, I just, I, we were all just blown away and it's, a, it's a big risk. You know, he's a, he was a feature guy. He was pretty fresh out of film school. He'd made um, his his two movies and Brick was a, something that Vince was just enamored of. And, and that's why we thought, 
he might be perfect for our show, and he was. Speaking of which, um, you had a very kind of similar beginning with the show. You know, as you were saying yesterday, you you saw the first season back when you know it was very seldom known by audiences, and yeah. you know you pro- approached Vince Gilligan with you know your spec script, and he was like, "Oh yes, that, that's great. Please, uh, I'm so glad you like the show." And that that was kind of your start. But from what I remember, <laughs> that's my start. That's not quite how the story goes. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, <laughs> of course, because you can't approach you know Vince Gilligan, but. It just sort of, yeah, the spec made its way there and it was all, you know, against the rules and it all worked out. Great Vegas gamble. Absolutely. Um, and as you said, there's a lot more to it than just that, of course. But just to summarize, because uh, this whole interview could be taken up with just uh, an incredible story of how you got onto the show. But um, before you were, you're still a dancer. You're still doing ballet. Um, barely, but yeah. Barely, but <laughs> what, what you can do of it, right? And uh, we'll get into that, of course, when we mention Flesh and Bone. And, um, you know, you said you were dabbling in acting or whatever. So uh, back when there was a writer strike and you did approach us, so how, how long were you writing beforehand? Like how much were you dabbling in screenwriting before? Oh, I was not that? dabbling. I was gamefully employed. Really? I had okay. worked on two network shows, and I was working on a network show when the writer's strike hit. So they basically just kicked us out of Disney, and we went out onto the street oh, wow. with picket signs. Um, so yeah, I had written on an NBC uh, procedural with Jeff Goldblum called Reigns. Yes. Graham Yost gave me my first job. And, uh, and the show I was working on during the strike was Eli Stone for ABC. Wow. Okay. Those are, those are huge in their own right. Yeah. So, um, I was already staffed. Well, not dabbling. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, certainly maybe in comparison to now, cause now you're like, you've taken over everything, you know, you've got like your own shows, uh, you've got flesh and bone and, and of course, which I want to ask you about. So, mm. um, how does it feel to go from, you know, like as a staff writer to like taking charge where it's like, okay, I've got, I've got this vision. Now I'm kind of like holding the reins. Well, um, you know, it's a long journey from one to the other. There are, you know, there are new writers who sell a project and suddenly they're thrust into the deep end. Generally, they don't run their show. They generally bring in somebody with a lot of show running experience to, to, um, guide and mentor a production. There's too much at stake to put somebody in there that doesn't have experience. Um, so uh, for me, I had been writing for years and I'd been on Breaking Bad for um, since season two. And we produced all our, of, our, of our own episodes. We were always on the ground. Vince felt really strongly that the writers should be completely in charge of their episodes and that they should have the opportunity to produce and that they should be the stewards of the material. Um, and a lot of shows don't operate that way and the writer is not on the set. And, um, but there was such a powerful vision behind Breaking Bad and we didn't, we just refused to leave anything up to chance for the people on the ground to have to try to figure out exactly what we meant by that would have been unfair and it wouldn't have made the show as good. So we were always on the ground. So by the time I sold Flesh and Bone, I was a co-EP on Breaking Bad. And I knew, you know, I hoped I knew how to run a show. And and I did, as it turns out. Breaking Bad, I guess, like other shows, like, you know, maybe Sopranos or anything else with that kind of weight and visceral nature, as you've just said, you know, really include the writers into the process where it's like, okay, they're they're fully there. They're fully in the mold of everything. So, you know, people like Vince Gilligan give you that opportunity to, to move up and really be integrated within the series, which I think is super important. Is that something that you've definitely taken in mind with, with these shows that you've proceeded with? Um, for sure. Um, I mean, flesh and bone was limited, so I had my writers for as long as I had them and I, I did want them to be on the set. Um, and they were, and in, Anne's going to be a whole other situation because um, it's an auteur project in that I'm writing the entire first season myself. That's exciting. <laughs> That's really cool. And uh, so it's like, well, I guess it's me <laughs> on the ground like all the time. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, and my producing partner, Miranda DePonsier, Um 
But yeah, I will be uh, the steward and the showrunner uh, on the ground. Um, with Flesh and Bone, you were able to bring in, you, as you said, it wasn't an autobiotic autobiographical film but it had things that you you know you identified with you know like the the tortures of dancing you know the male gaze that put pressures on the female dancers because you said it's not biographical how what's the fine line between like what you included into the into the show and what you kind of said okay let's let's create something for the for these characters on their own right um well that's kind of a hard question to answer because you know uh, when we broke story, we were, gave ourselves free reign to be, to, you know, to go as plunge as deep into these characters that we were creating. Um, and everybody weighed in with, uh, their experiences, you know, life experience for a writer is key. Um, the more you've lived, the more you've lived, the more you can offer. So, yeah, certainly there were a lot of autobiographical components. Um, but we, we broke story for character the same way you would on any, um, detailed character drama. For sure. Now with Anne, because you said that's a story, uh, Anne of Green Gables, for those who are listening, um, that you, identified with especially growing up is there a lot of room for you to maybe do something similar where you can inject some of your own personal emotions and and, and traits into this this welly beloved character since it is an auto project as you've said yeah but i mean it all will be in service of Anne and Anne's actual circumstances um you know she's a a very well-rounded character and then because the book was written in the time that it was written um which is the time period that I'm setting the show as well there isn't any need to to um veer from that i think it's the best place to tell the story but that being said because of the time there's a lot that's alluded to in terms of Anne's past and Anne's background and and that's and same for Matthew Marilla that's the stuff that interests me like, why are they the way they are? What came before? How does that inform the way that these characters are walking through their world? And um, I'm always interested in damaged people. Um, that That's the jam for me. That's what really excites me as a writer and the psychology of why they are the way they are and what came before. So that's what's exciting me so much about what's between the lines in this book and and what have Anne's experiences been to date and how do those inform um, why she is the way she is and what are her coping mechanisms and yeah. That's, that's great because complexity is as any screenwriter could tell you is exactly essentially what one needs in any screenplay, whether it's light or dark. You've, basically worked with some of the most complex characters in modern TV history, especially like looking at Breaking Bad. Cause I mean, good Lord, like to see this man go from, from up here to like all the way down. Mr. Gyps to Scarface has Vince always <laughs> like to say. That's, that is the perfect, perfect analogy actually. Um, yeah, it's complicated, complicated character. Just suffice to say, right? Yeah. How hard is it? Because of course it's hard to come up with a complex character, but how hard is it to come up with one that's correct and like everything makes sense? Like every quirk and every idea that this person comes up with makes sense in, in their world and in their mind. Like how does one even go about that? Especially with, you know, like Mr. White, for instance. Yeah, you have to, you know, there's a certain amount of schizophrenia, uh, in being a writer in that. And I, and I do use the term loosely and lightly and, um, but you have to stand in the character's shoes. You know, we spent an inordinate amount of time on Breaking Bad saying, where's Walt's head at? Where's Walt's head at? Where's Skylar's head at? Where's Jesse's head at? Because we had to go into great psychological detail um, to understand the choices that they were making. And that none of the choices were black and white choices. They were layered with all kinds of their circumstances and all kinds of their foibles as people. And so I think at a certain point, you stop thinking about them as characters and you start observing them as people. And we broke story really organically on that show. It's because it's not a procedural, because we didn't have any 
you know, moments that we had to hit. There was no, like, the crime happens here and the investigation starts now, and there there wasn't any of that. We really just uh, let the characters tell us what the story was going to be. So it was very uh, depthful exploration. And that exploration hit a lot of people, you know, like a lot of people my age, a lot of older, younger many many demographics it's one of the most widely lauded shows ever and once the slow burning hit you know it hit the running like it, it into that specific year and it just went full force and you had like all of these people with these, these pop culture references like everybody acting like jesse pinkman you know saying his catchphrases or uh, <laughs> you know people identifying as mr white not like as like seriously maybe in the show but like super in a super jovial fashion, like everybody just taking these characters to heart, regardless of what they've, of what they've done. How hard is it to write after that? Like to say, okay, now we've got so much expectation and all of these people love these characters. Like we haven't seen in years since like, yeah. you know, the wire or six feet under great show. Ah, absolutely. And breaking bad's up there with them. How do you, what, what, what do you, what did you guys do in the, no in the pressure? Room? Exactly. It's, yeah. like, it's like, what do we do now? Everybody I know. Loves Jesse. No, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And, uh, you know, the story goes that, uh, the plan was to kill Jesse in season one. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the writer strike saved his life. <laughs> the writer strike saved his life. And and uh, but ever since that time, um, Brian Cranston always punked Aaron like regularly. Really? Yeah. Before the scripts came out, he'd be like, "Hey, buddy, can we talk? We I got to sit down. I got to tell you something." And Aaron's you know so sweet, and Brian be like, "Dude, um, they're gonna." I don't want you to be upset. They're gonna they're gonna kill your character, and Aaron would be like, "What? What?" You know. <laughs> but at that point, it was never gonna happen because they were just money together. You know, they were just the best odd couple, absolutely ever. Um, but that being said, getting back to your question, um, we felt the weight of the scrutiny and the excitement and the identification. Um, Deeply, keenly, and it put a lot of pressure on us because we didn't want to disappoint. And we didn't, you know, and we wanted to stay true uh, to the characters. And so we just sort of, I think, even became more and more cloistered in the room and just made sure that we were telling exactly the story that we wanted to tell. Just to go back to the one remark earlier, it's 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 a bit ironic because if anything, Jesse ended up being one of the more safer characters in the series. So he ended up being a moral compass. There you go, exactly. <laughs> like if anybody didn't technically die metaphorically or literally, it was Jesse Pinkman. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> and such raging debate in the room about who was going to die in that final season. Like we had big decisions to make, overwhelming decisions to make. And Jesse was on the chopping block there for a minute, for sure. I thought he was going to die before Hank. I thought he was going to die. Yeah, a lot of of debate about that. We just couldn't do it, though. We couldn't do it. He's too likable. As a dropout, he's too likable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To go back to what you were saying with, uh, you know, the the pressure that you you managed to overcome, especially with um, how succinct Breaking Bad was. It was just five or five and a half, whatever you want to call it, seasons, and... It, it did its thing and it still is leaving a huge impact. I mean, Better Call Saul had to come as quickly as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Now that you're adapting another character that's, you know, got like an audience already, you know, Anne of Green Gables, are you going to apply that same kind of mentality where it's like, Hey, I've, I've worked with this kind of pressure before. I wanted to a love show. It became even bigger and we survived. Let's do this again with my show, with my creativity. Let's do this again with somebody that girls from around the world have grown up with. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way. But, but yeah, and it is interesting. I am starting to feel, um, the, the weight of the obligation to honor the story. So I don't want to mess with that and I don't want to disappoint anybody. And I want to tell the story the way I want to tell it. So that's going to be the delicate balance. I don't think you can disappoint anybody. I mean, seeing your past body of work, I think, I think you're. I hope not, man. <laughs> I, I think we're in good hands with this adaptation. <laughs> now, just to wrap things up, um, do you have any parting words for, you know, American writers, Canadian writers, as you kind of can identify with both? Like, yeah. Any parting words for us who want to make it big or, you know, want to break bad? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, my 
you know, you've got to be, um, uh, what do I want to say? You have to just persist. Yes. Just persist. Um, keep knocking on doors. Keep writing. Keep your ass in the chair. Write, write, write. And, um, and have a point of view. And if you have a voice, someone's going to pay attention. Absolutely. And your hard work and dedication obviously has paid off immensely. Um, you mentioned, you know, Six Feet Under and, you know, The Wire, other shows that I've mentioned as being really good. Was there any show, because you definitely wrote in that vein with some of your past work, is there any show that you grew up with and said, yes, this is why I want to write as a final note? Um, I wouldn't say so much that it was a show because I was raised in the theater. Right. And, um, you know, Pinter and O'Neill and all, you know, the greats. That's my foundation. That's my template and Tennessee Williams and, you know, the great, the great playwrights are, um, are absolutely my inspiration. Um, so, and then, and then, yeah, like all those. So that's why I was writing. I, I started as a playwright and that was my influence. And then there have been some super inspirational shows. And I will say that Deadwood, Yes. Was uh, one of the reasons why I thought, oh, maybe I can write television because that was theater on the small screen and it spoke my language and I totally, it it changed the way that I thought about my future. And just to bring things up into full full circle, you have, you know, your Emmy winning episode, Ozymandias, which is actually named after Shelley Palm. Exactly. Perfect. Which it brings things full circle because Breaking Bad in its own right is, is quite a theatrical show where you have like the rise and fall, you know, the, the, the overcoming, like all of these Shakespearean tropes. So I think your work speaks your dedication and it's been a pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. All right. I think it was pretty funny. Afterwards, as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, full disclosure, I do volunteer for the festival. I work as a speaker host, meaning you're basically a personal assistant to the speakers. I was assigned to Moira Wally Beckett. And I just have to say what an absolute pleasure it was working with her. She she is probably one of the biggest Breaking Bad fans there are. So it's pretty cool to listen to her talk, give her speech, but then talking to her one-on-one, she just wanted to talk about what I thought about the show and how it was made and, and her thoughts. And it was just so much fun. Um, did, was that an enjoyable one for you, Andreas? Absolutely. First off, I want to give her her full due. She didn't just win Golden Globes. She actually won Emmys as well, You're which right. was so. No, no, that's all good, but she rightfully so deserves them because she's written some of the best writing in television. So, um, yeah, it's, and you've interviewed a lot of people, Dakota, so you've probably had maybe like a moment or two like this. We've met a lot of people not to be like, oh, look at us, how great we are. No, but like you and I, we're in an industry where we just meet a lot of famous people. We meet a lot of talents and we just, we interview them. We might just be in the same room with them whatever it may be. And there's very seldom a moment where it's kind of something that kind of just like, it kind of just takes you aback and you're like, Holy shit. Okay. Wait, this is a bit surreal. And that was with her because, um, after the interview, like she had to prep for another one and, uh, she was told, okay, you have to do this one on camera. She's like, okay, I've I've got a doll up now. And while she was just applying makeup and I was putting all of my equipment away, her and I were just talking very casual and it was just, it was surreal. It was like a scene from a movie singer, like putting on her makeup, just talking, like looking at me through the mirror. It was like, is this a dream? Holy shit. I just interviewed the person who wrote Ozymandias. You know, this is pretty crazy. And she's talking to me like, like I'm just her buddy working on the show with her kind of thing. Like I hate having to put on makeup for these things. It's a lot of work. This like just very casually talking to me after we've had like a 20 minute interview. So it was just, bizarre but what a nice lady so chill so easy to get along with she's great cool uh are you a, a breaking band breaking bad fan nathan i am yeah i really like that series 
Yeah, so it was, it was very interesting to to see all the insight about it. I don't know if you felt the same way, but like listening to her talk about the show just made me want to like go home and start rewatching. You know, they're talking about the the teddy bear in the pool with the airplane crash, and you know, certain scenes with the Hank dying and what have you. Just all of it was like bringing back all these memories, being like, oh my god, this is such a good show. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got the great privilege because my girlfriend's studying a course in university, which is literally philosophy and politics in Breaking Bad. And she's never seen it before. So she's starting from the beginning and fully dissecting it. Like, where's the neoliberalism? Where's you know this philosopher, what he would say about this? And I'm starting again from the beginning. And it's, it's an absolute privilege. So I've, I'm so glad I've got that opportunity again, especially after that interview. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, she was definitely uh, really great. And she told me afterwards that um, uh, Vince Gilligan, who is the creator of Breaking Bad and also the creator of Better Call Saul, has been trying to recruit her to write an episode for Better Call Saul. So uh, she said she doesn't have any plans right now, but if she has an idea for something for it in the future, she most definitely will be writing for him again because she does really enjoy working with him. But it was kind of cool to hear about Everyone knows about the famous um, uh, cue cards on the wall to how Vince Gilligan breaks his his show, which was pretty kind of interesting to listen to her talk about it from an actual real perspective. Yeah, absolutely, because she brought a light to just what a crazy genius Gilligan is. So, you know, we weren't just listening about the cue cards, but we could feel her agony having to deal with, you know, his insane obsessive compulsions about these cue cards and you felt like you felt them too. It was like, yeah, Gilligan, what the hell, man? Why did we have to do that? But obviously you didn't. But the way she honors and treasures this man so much that she can willingly just talk about this kind of stuff where it's like, this is so difficult, but it's so worth it. You know, it's eye opening. Absolutely. And, you know, you can see a lot of his, his eccentricities, let's say in breaking bad. Absolutely. It was kind of funny. Um, the day of and the day before she was just tweeting out photos of back on the set and being like, Oh, I remember this day of being on set with Brian and Jesse and just like so casually name dropping these things and, uh, being on set with Ryan Johnson and Vince and all these things. It was just like, it was very nice to see that was very clearly a tight knit casting crew and, uh, and their love of the craft really shone through. Yeah, and it's it's great because she has all of these personal tales, like how she had to work in the same dingy small space because Gilligan had, you know, superstitions that, you know, why change where you work? But these are these are things that probably added hard to the show, like, like how tightly knit everybody was, how comfortable they were despite their conditions, which they could have easily grown out of, but they didn't get um, modest beyond beyond themselves like. It's real, and it you could definitely see that in the final product because it's one of the most acclaimed series of all time. So, cool. It, it, the proof's in the pudding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess let's uh, let's do our wrap ups. Uh, Nathan, what was your? Uh, do you have any final thoughts on the conference? Is this one that you're you're going to want to maybe uh, cover again for us again next year? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd love to come back. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, the, the thing was great. The whole thing was, um, a great experience. Uh, the networking was fantastic. Um, and, and honestly, yeah, like I said in the first episode, it just kind of left you with this, this energy that when you left, um, it really kind of settled in that like, okay, uh, let's work. I don't want to say let's work harder, but let's, it just inspired you to write. I guess that's the, the best way to say it. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like I'm not a a, a writer in that sense, but uh, every year afterwards, I'm always just like, oh, what if I do have you know an idea that's just waiting to come out? So it's just sort of funny that they really do energize you. Yeah, it, it energizing. That's the best word you got. It. What about you, Andres? Any any final thoughts? Are you looking forward to next year's? Well, in terms of final thoughts, I think as you know, the best screenwriters will usually do. You both took the words right out of my mouth, so. I'll leave it at that. But as for next year, I can't wait to enter, you know, new territory that I've never visited before and revisit old territory because every single writer there basically has a new take on something or they disagree with what other writers would say. So you get to see all perspectives. So whatever and whoever are coming, bring it. 
Sounds good to me. Where uh, where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And Nathan, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Rathaniel Noisen. All right, and you can find me at DGAPA. You can follow the show at ContraZoomPod. Make sure you check out liveandlimbo.com where you can find the show notes where we're going to include information about the speakers and the conference and include the reviews that Andreas wrote about day one of it and uh, Nathaniel wrote about day two of the conference. Um, But yeah, I hope you enjoyed all these great interviews that Andreas did. Thank you so much for that. I want to give a, a special thanks to the team behind um, behind the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. Are there anyone specifically you want to, to thank, Andreas? Just the entire team, you know, Julia, um, all of the, the stagehands behind the scenes. You know, everybody who basically did like what you were doing, Dakota, just like everybody. Um it, it always runs so smoothly and there's never a problem. There's never a hiccup. It's, it's incredible. Like the amount of responsibilities they have and they're able to pull off. So just anybody who's been involved the past three years, I've been there. And, and I guess a very special thanks to Glenn Coburn, who uh, runs Meridian artists, which is uh, a writing agency that actually hosts the event. So without him, it wouldn't happen. Uh, so yeah, thanks to to Glenn and to to Julie and to everyone else on the TSC team. Uh, we appreciate that you allow us to come and cover. So thank you so much for listening. Hi, this is Moira Wally Beckett. I'm a writer, executive producer from Breaking Bad, Flesh and Bone, and currently the Anne series. And I'm here at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference, talking on Contra Zoom for Live in Limbo.